Welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You are, as ever, with Ian and Mike. And together we are rereading the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. We're getting to the end, to the very end of The Surgeon's Mate. Mike, catch us up, please. Where did we get to in the last episode? And what might we be able to look forward to in this week's podcast? Oh, thanks, Ian. Well, last week, if you remember, they were captured on the coast of France. The Ariel had run aground, and just in time for them to get off, Duhamel, uh, this French agent, it appears to be a French agent, collects Stephen and Jack and Yagyello and escorts them to the Temple Prison in Paris. Uh, They have some gastronomic meltdowns on the way. (laughs) And um, and those crayfish, (laughs) this crayfish scene, right? And then the prison, uh, as they arrive and, and as they continue to live there, is being torn down. And at one point, the wall comes down and it reveals that their cook, the widow Ledoux, is, uh, can now see them, talk to them. They've been writing notes back and forth. She's clearly smitten by Yagyello because they talk to each other and sing to each other and send messages to each other via an alphabet. And she is secretly hiding tools in their meals to help them escape. They're making very slow progress trying to remove the stone slabs at the bottom of their privy that hangs out over the moat in the prison. And Stephen has been taken away to be interviewed by the French military intelligence. So far, so good. He's come back from one interrogation. His assessment is that He's okay because they don't appear to have intelligence from Boston, which if they did, as Sir Jason Blaine had warned him, would clearly identify Stephen. Now, in this episode, the French pursuit of Stephen continues. Multiple intelligence services appear to be trying to take hold of Stephen. Stephen continues to wonder about some comment about half of Golgonda, which was offered for his release And that sum could literally put a price on his head, possibly condemning Jack and Yagyello, too. And this being the end of the surgeon's mate, Ian, we may well finally find out who or what is the surgeon's mate. It's going to be good. We've got lots of twists and turns before we find that out, though. As well as all of that, today we get to wrap up our discussion of the surgeon's mate by sharing with you a great interview we had with a friend of the podcast and author, Rachel McMillan, long-time Diana Villiers fan. The action in our last episode, I think, ended with Stephen having had one round of interrogation and inquisition at the hands of the French military intelligence service, and he's come back to the cell with Yagiello and Jack at the temple. And he's, he's hungry. There's this nice scene that he's eating voraciously, which is always a good sign. And he's really playing it calm. He's kind of saying, ah, it was just a routine interrogation, nothing to worry about. He doesn't give any hint of how close the French intelligence agents seem to have come to to calling Stephen out as a, as a, as a true agent. Meanwhile, I think Mike, maybe Jack is a bit preoccupied. He asks Stephen, what's the French for a double sister block coked? And we in the humble O'Brien universe have difficulty catching up with all the jargon. There's no chance that Stephen Maturin's going to be able to catch up with that jargon and translate it into French. So never mind. Stephen says, I don't even know what the English is. Jack, 
I don't think he's paying very much attention to Stephen kind of brushing off his interrogation experience. I think he's a bit focused and a bit preoccupied on his efforts to lift the slabs in the privy. So he decides to go back to drawing a sketch and trying to come up with some kind of a scheme. Yeah, trying to get a note over to the widow to see, can you get me one of these things here? I'll, I'll send you a picture, right? And Stephen, he's had this big appetite and then he quickly gets himself off to bed. Not necessarily because he's tired, but because he needs the silence to really be working these things out in his head. He's thinking to himself that the French clearly in this interrogation were guessing. They're using intuition. They don't have any real evidence. Their witnesses are not convincing. But he keeps thinking back to this one colonel who had this outburst talking about somebody offering half of Golconda, which Stephen takes to mean great wealth for his release. And he knows that he's got some medical friends, some natural philosopher friends who might try to free them, but none of them would have or would offer 100,000 louis. Uh, the only one he knows with that kind of money is the British intelligence agent working in Paris, but no intelligence agent would do it because it would condemn both Stephen and the intelligence agent. So it couldn't be that. So he doesn't know who this is. He's getting tired. Jack and Young Yellow are working harder than ever in the privy, and he falls asleep, O'Brien writes, as the words Golconda and Golgotha merging into one another. So this great wealth and the hill on which Christ is crucified merging into one another as Diana's name and image appear in his mind. Mm. It's a great example of these dark moments that we get inside Stephen's introspection, and there's light and dark at the same time, ding, a little glint of light that says, maybe this was Diana's doing and all that that implies. But then the Golgotha illusion says this is still a situation with foreboding and darkness and death. Yes. So they come for him again in the morning. And once again, Stephen is nourishing himself. this, This all happens as Stephen is slurping some coffee. But the nourishment that Stephen takes is he takes this glass ampulla, what he called the sudden death, ready to poison himself if torture gets out of control. So that's in his cheek. And we're ready for him to go back and face what might be a last round of interrogation and even torture. But, but Mike, surprise, who's there to pick him up? It's Duhamel. And he's informing Stephen that he, Duhamel, is there partly on his own account and partly as a messenger. And I love this moment. We're going to have this really great conversation, this kind of conversational dance between Stephen and Duhamel. And to begin with, they're both in comfortably kind of artificial territory. They're talking about um, Duhamel's bowels, which are still still a bit upset by the crayfish. French doctors haven't been quite as successful as Stephen has been with Jack. And Duhamel goes on from there to say that speaking for his principal... He tells him that from the French point of view, the war's outcome is not certain and that there are high-placed men in France who would like to propose a negotiated peace. So we've gone straight away from Duhamel's disturbed insides to high politics and high strategy. And Stephen clearly hopes that his principal's project is going to succeed and that France can be spared, but he's not willing to open himself up to having a real person-to-person conversation about this yet with Duhamel. He says, I'm just a plain old naval surgeon and I can't help. He's really kind of, Duhamel has set it up to say, the only people my principals want to talk to 
is a highly praised intelligence agent. Is that you? And of course, Stephen realizes, he says, yes, <laughs> he's off to the guillotine here. So it's fascinating. You know, we're kind of seeing Stephen's mind start to work around this like Jack's mind works as he's getting ready to go into action. He's trying to feel him out. What would this be? Brilliant here. And so Duhamel finally comes back and tells Stephen that Stephen is the prisoner of his principal, the guy that Duhamel's working for, and that they had intended to lodge Stephen in the temple. They were going to approach him much earlier. They were going to have some guarantees because Stephen's saying hypothetically, hey, look, if there was somebody like this, that person would want all these guarantees and things. And what kind of guarantees might that kind of person get? And so Duhamel is telling him, right, oh, well, uh, we would have done something like this, but we really haven't had the time. And now we've got to move quickly because this woman, the wife of one of the great council members, the great council of Napoleon there, has appeared at this ball, the ball being at Talleyrand's ball. So Talleyrand, somebody we've kind of kept in mind from earlier here. And she's wearing this unbelievable, prodigious blue diamond. And the next day at this meeting of the Great Council, her husband proposes that Stephen should be released from prison. And O'Brien writes that he was displaying a sudden love for learning and a sensitivity for international scientific opinion. And Stephen now grows pale because he remembers that Golconda doesn't just mean general wealth. It was an Indian great mogul's diamond mine. And so now I think Stephen, the penny has dropped for him and he's going, oh, my gosh, this is Diana's beautiful big diamond. And Duhamel reports that everybody on the council is pretty much convinced, but then they decide, we'll let Napoleon decide. Now, Duhamel tells him all the Secret Service agencies know Stephen has this great value um, and they all want to possess him because they all want the payoff or they all want to find out why he's so valuable and, and do him in. So Duhamel tells him he doesn't know where the diamond came from, some thin story about this woman inheriting it. Uh, but he warns Stephen that he's in the greatest danger. He's likely to be killed, tells him that his principal has gotten Napoleon's orders to release Stephen, and that it can be done the same way that Sir Smith, another great naval officer, quote-unquote, escaped from the temple earlier. He just needs to know the conditions under which Stephen would carry the message. So on the one hand, the chink of light blazes even brighter because Diana is intervening and there are all these forces in play that are aiming to get Stephen sprung from prison and back home to deliver this message. But the act of all of this great new news is also highlighting Stephen's identity as an agent. So he's now in even more jeopardy. So we've got even greater hope, but even greater jeopardy. And I love, Mike, the way this conversation goes on. We, we can read Stephen's mind working, as you said, just like the way Jax does when he's going into action. And uh, it says, Stephen decided there was still the possibility of a trap. His instinct was against it, but his instinct was not infallible. The man you have in mind, he said slowly, would in the first place require some proof of good faith. He might, for example, ask you to give him your revolving pistol. Yes, said Duhamel, and laid it on the table. Take care, it is loaded. 
And Mike, it, this is almost like a Socratic dialogue. You know, Stephen and Duhamel are sort of asking each other questions and giving responses initially very hypothetically. And the pistol on the table is both potentially an asset for Stephen if he's going to undertake this escape and carry this message if he agrees to adopt his identity of a secret agent, which he has not agreed to do yet. But it's also there as a symbol. You know, Stephen's saying, well, if you were serious about this, you might make yourself vulnerable and also offer me something like a pistol. So we're still in this odd third person kind of mood here. And Steve says, Stephen weighed it in his hand, looked at the ingenious mechanism. Stephen said in a parenthesis, it would be too heavy for me. It cocks when you pull the trigger, said Duhamel in the same curious timeout. The barrel revolves by itself. You get used to the weight. And I think this is them. They're both just killing time, chatting about the gun while they both decide what to do with this conversation next. And it says, Stephen decides, I think, to to stay hypothetical, but he does go on to say what his terms would be. He, this is Stephen, meaning the hypothetical secret agent, he would insist upon the release of his companions, the restitution of the diamond, and immunity for the original possessor, he's meaning Diana, of course, with liberty to travel if that should be desired. And I love this next exchange. Your man asks a great deal, said Duhamel. And Stephen's reply is, so does your principal. He asks hypothesis to put his head under the guillotine. But I, th- I think we've just about made it through this really bizarre dance. Duhamel says he's going to go talk to his principal. And Mike, I think we're going to learn something about who the principal is. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because Duhamel has said that he can't reveal that, but he jumps into his coach and he asks his coachman to take him to Valance, which Stephen knows to be the home of Talleyrand. So I think, and Stephen says, you know, this clearly is another sign of good faith. So he's like, I can't tell you who he is, but I actually not nod, nod, wink, wink. I just did. So Duhamel takes back the pistol for now. He gives Stephen the Naval Chronicle and some English papers and tells him that the major over at the military prison is going to send for Stephen again, but he'll be treated well and returned to the temple in the evening. And so this evening. So do you think that we can rely on Duhamel and Talleyrand between them to keep Stephen safe? Oh, I'm not sure. What do we know well, about you know, Talleyrand? It's fascinating. Talleyrand is an absolute survivor. This is a guy that, you know, works for the king then the king's overthrown. He works for Napoleon. Looking forward in history, Napoleon's gone. He works for the king again. And this guy is amazing. I mean, he is a French foreign minister. He's this incredible diplomat. He's the Bishop of Autun. He's you know, the Catholic Church's representative of the French court. Um, Stephen <laughs> later re- refers to him as a pillar of falsehood, a prodigy, a phoenix of duplicity, but excellent company and by a certain standard, quite sound. So this guy is really something. <laughs> Bottom line, I think, while Stephen is like, this is not a guy you necessarily can trust. It's a guy who has the wherewithal to do this and probably is a guy who's survivor enough that if he's seeing that Napoleon may not make it. He wants to have himself well-placed on the other side of the outcome. So we've got this great jeopardy. Stephen's placed his life, his fate, in the hands of this capable but clearly duplicitous person and his assistant, Duhamel, who himself is a spy. And Mike, I think O'Brien's going to help us out here. We're going to get thrown a bone. Because in amongst all this jeopardy and all this tension for Stephen, a couple of other things, I think, are going to fall into place. First of all, Stephen comes back in to the cell, hands out the newspapers and tells them 
again, very low key, that it was just Duhamel needing another dose. And Jack is quite excited to have the newspapers because he can't do any more without the block and tackle. And in the papers, we get a first little turn up of good news, which is that we learn that the Jason in the chase off the coast of Brittany, the Jason took the Meduse. So it had been worth running poor old HMS Ariel ashore after all. Isn't it fascinating? It's such O'Brien fashion. If this had been today's blockbuster movie, we would have seen that whole action with the Meduse and the Jason in all its glory. But O'Brien, it's just a mention later in the newspaper. So Stephen gets to ponder the situation here. I think he says 90% of him believes Duhamel and thinks it's going to be okay. 10% of him has doubts about his safety and about the scheme. And he processes this a little bit more. He says he, he knew that he knows that his mind distorts things and he sometimes doesn't have clear perspective. He had been wrong, it says, about Diana, for example. He had never in his heart believed her capable of love. Of friendship, surely, of fondness and even quite strong affection at times, but never love, above all, not for him. Yet now, there was the proof in the form of this glorious, loving, hair-brained action. He knew she valued that bauble above her salvation, and even more than that, she had put her head into a noose for him. He felt a great wave of gratitude and admiration warm his heart. And when once again Jack broke in, pacing across the room with the chronicle open in his hand, Stephen looked up with an extraordinary serenity in his face. Oh, huzzah, Diana. I tell you, this is one of my favorite passages in the canon to date with this circumnavigation. And it's such perfect timing that we're reading this today and then talking with Rachel McMillan today as well. And, and I, wish, I wish I had reread this quote before our call with her, because it just puts such a glorious spotlight on everything she has to say. I, I love that interview. So Jack comes in. Yeah, more, more good news. Okay, we still got this jeopardy for Stephen, but we've uncovered that the chase of the Meduse paid off, and there's more good news in the Naval Chronicle. Jack comes in and announces that, Miss Smith, the Miss Smith of Halifax, is engaged to marry a Captain Lushington of the Royal Marines. So, the presumed pregnancy, the blackmail, the at least some aspect of the infidelity is taken off of Jack's shoulders. Jack reminds Stephen that they know Lushington and he says, God help him. And Jack is elated. Jack, Jack is able to say he's never been so relieved. Never been so relieved in my life, he says. And he's ready to have another go at the slab. And Mike, I, I love this for Jack. I, I think Jack's only getting a minor serving of payoff here because he's in O'Brien's doghouse for his misconduct, for his infidelity. He's been on the back foot all the way through this book. So he gets a little payoff. He's able to say, I'm relieved. And he turns to, he doesn't get to play his violin. He doesn't get to have a dinner. He doesn't get to uh, burst with joy. We don't get much firsthand description of Jack's joy, but he's allowed to express it by turning back to his work on the slab with renewed enthusiasm. Yeah, and it is. We've got all these great payoffs, this great news. And then we have another little downer because their lunch shows up and there's no block and tackle there. But they say, all right, it's okay. We hope that maybe by supper, maybe by supper, it'll be here. And then they start eating their soup. And in it, they find two tinned iron pulleys used for washing lines. Jack looks at them, says they're too weak. 
He describes what he needs to Yagello, and Yagello unfortunately informs him that uh, the widow is going to be away for the rest of the day and tomorrow. So a little bit, a little bit of good news, but not quite what Jack wanted. We don't have the widow, and then they come for Stephen again. Well, before we get into Stephen, since since we're talking about Soup Mike, and before we get into Stephen's further treatment at the hands of the French military, perhaps this is a good time for us all to take a quick break. So why don't you all go grab yourself some soup? Uh, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. So there's something that we want to tell you all about the way that we're planning to develop the podcast going forward and give you new ways to get involved in the life of the podcast and help us out as well. We just announced on social media, several of you have seen it already and, and come to our aid. We appreciate that that we are now accepting patrons for The Lover's Hole. It's always going to be free to download. But if you would like to help defray some of the expenses of producing The Lover's Hole, we're now giving you an opportunity to do that easily and directly. And in return for your help, we'd love to offer you the chance to stay closely involved with the podcast, to get access to some patrons-only specials that we'll be creating, get the inside scoop on some of our materials and where the show's going next. We'd love it if you can get on board. You can find us and find out about the opportunities to help us out at patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. You'll know you'll have found the right place because you'll see our logo and our graphics right there. There are loads of content creators on the internet who manage to engage with their audiences via Patreon. We're really happy that it seems to suit us and you, our listeners, really well. So we hope that you'll enjoy participating with us in this way. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash lovers all. A glass of wine with all of you. Welcome back. You're with Ian and Mike listening to The Lovers Hole. Stephen's been picked up again. No sign this time of Duhamel. No sign of the connection to Talleyrand. He's back in the hands of presumably French military intelligence. And he's back in the cell at the French military prison awaiting interrogation. And they, Mike, they had this really transparent effort to, to plant a story with Stephen. They throw in a man who speaks Catalan and says in heavily Catalan-accented French that he has suffered for Catalan independence and he's trying to clearly uh, be an agent provocateur to get Stephen to say something uh, indiscreet on behalf of Catalan uh, statehood. And Stephen spots that play a mile away. And there are a few more of these kind of poor witnesses. And Stephen's expecting that you know maybe they're going to give up. And this game is all pretty thin and transparent. When suddenly a new person shows up, it says a sharp looking man asks Stephen to explain why a lady should offer a million for his release if neither he nor she is a political agent. And, and Mike there, the world tilts again, doesn't it? And we're reminded of just how much danger is is offered by Diana having made this really great, loving, but foolhardy gesture. Yeah. And, you know, Stephen states the obvious that no agent would be capable of such folly. No you know, agent would be dumb enough to do this. And somebody speculates, could she be so enamored of Dr. Matron's person this woman so in love with Dr. Matron and Stephen says he hears the first sincere amazement in the rest of the room. Everybody think this woman, Stephen, ah, not happening. Right. Oh, and you know, Stephen gives a little bit of a, of a cultural reference back to mythology about these women who were in love with a bull 
And that, you know, he says, well, you know, history has had less eligible companions than me, but <laughs> they, they go in when suddenly another big shift in the ground here. Yeah. So a new person comes in, whispers in the major's ear, and Stephen hears clearly. He leaves. He comes back in five minutes with no none other than Johnson, Diana's former lover. Johnson exclaims, that is the man. And the major, with hatred on his face, says, you killed Dubray and Pontecane. And Mike, this is the moment that Stephen had been pretty sure all along that he'd be able to avoid. He was pretty sure that he'd dispensed with all the witnesses and that everybody was far enough away that he might not get revealed as the person who had done that act in the hotel in Boston. But the game is up. Johnson's called him out. The major sends him to what they call the beehive cells. And this, this is just horrible. This is darkness and psychological cruelty uh, he's in this cell with filth and ooze and swarms of blue bottles and flies. So not only have we got our repulsion at the idea of blue bottles and flies in a dark cell, we've got our repulsion at whatever must be in the cell to keep the blue bottles and flies there. And also loads of real symbols of psychological suffering on Stephen's part. He looks through a barred opening to the paving of the execution ground and night falls with this image of the execution ground in his mind. Stephen sees a man and a woman nearby through a neighborhood window holding hands and kissing. So he sees a loving couple who can't keep their hands off each other and he can't, you know, that's something that he can't reach. And meanwhile, it says he sees the planets move across the sky. And this is the Stephen who has almost been willing to join Jack Aubrey in talking about omens, looking at the planets crossing the sky and we say that he feels the ampulla of poison in his cheek. Although he had long thought prayer in time of danger to be indecent, it says, prayers sang in his mind, the long hypnotic cadences of plain chant, imploring protection for his love. So he does turn to prayer, and he's praying right, for Diana. Right. At this point, I'm thinking, how in the world do we get out of this? He's in the hands of the military intelligence we never wanted to be in. He's been clearly identified. We've got the scenes that you just described, Ian, and all of a sudden, O'Brien has, boom, there's a knock on the door. Stevens brought back. There's a general and his aide, and the aide is, and the general are questioning this colonel, the colonel who had been so anti-Stephen and so bursting out about Stephen, the one who had brought him to the first interrogation. And the general is saying, is this man the prisoner of the temple? And the colonel says, yes. And he says, well, then take him back to the temple. And then he tells the colonel to report to the secretary's office at eight in the morning. And all of a sudden, for what the military people call an, an interview without coffee. <laughs> exactly. Well put. And Stephen finds himself in a carriage with the governor from the temple who is worn and anxious and looking old and depressed on his way back to the temple. This is really great. I mean, in the hands of a lesser writer, you would have had some big showdown between the general and the colonel, and you would have had some great metaphorical reveal that Stephen is going to be okay. But actually, the, the moment that the general takes charge is really kind of low-key and matter-of-fact. And also, we get some empathy for his antagonists. We get this point about the governor being old and depressed and what it must be like trying to hold your place in a faction in a regime in France that's 
coming close to defeat and is probably crumbling. It's really, really rich writing. It's brilliant. It is. It absolutely is. Luckily, when Stephen gets back, he's he's finally ready to open up. So it's not another, you know, routine return. He makes sure that there's no guards listening. And then he asks Jack, is there any way to expedite their escape? He tells him that Johnson is in Paris, that Stephen's been identified. And they're close. They're close. The privy stones are bare. They've kind of got all the mortar holding it back. But Jack is so worried about these pulleys with the thin pins. But he does. Here you see Jack kind of going into action. His mind is running through. And he finds this new way to rig the pulleys to relieve the strain. And he's just working painstakingly with this silk rope. You know, slowly, O'Brien writes, weaving an intricate web. So we've got a metaphor of a spider as well, with the silk and the weaving and the web. Right. <laughs> it's really beautiful detail. And again, we've, we've come right up close firsthand to Jack's point of view, and it really seems to be the, you know, the, the way that O'Brien triggers a certain kind of excitement in the action for us. He brings us right up to the, to the visual details of what's happening around Jack and around Stephen. And the slab starts to rise. Stephen manages to thrust some wood in to keep it there. The strings quiver and vibrate, a little bit like a violin string, and the slab comes back down. One of the pins has failed. <sighs> so Jack manages to replace the pin with the steel tail of a file, and he rearranges the ropes to take the strain off. And they finally raise the first stone, and finally Stephen fills the place with wood. So they've made their first step. And Mike, this whole rope and pulleys thing, besides all the metaphorical language and the poetry, is actually a kind of back shadow because we we had the mini and Ariel trying to be pulled off the sandbar with a complex web-like arrangement of ropes and pulleys just a couple of chapters ago. So we should give a shout out actually to our to our supporter Robert Bowton on Patreon. Thank you, Robert. Well spotted. Um, it's great to have the conversation going on over there. And if you'd like to join Robert on Patreon, then please head over to patreon.com slash lubbershole and support the podcast and you too can join in the conversation. Absolutely. So this whole thing, you know, we're, we're talking about this pretty simply, but but this is taking hours and hours through the night. Jack's replaced this pin. He's reconsidering his plan. And then he thinks, well, well wait a minute. Maybe instead of having to move both of these slabs, if I actually re-rig this thing and tilt it, we can lift it up and drop a slab right down the hole. It could save hours, but it will make this huge noise. And they're talking. They think, well, we haven't really noticed any night patrols recently. The more and more of the prison that's demolished, the less anybody seems to be around. And they all agree it's, it's worth the risk. And they carefully raise, they wedge, they slide, they keep repeating over and over again. And finally... The stone goes crashing down. It, you know, it explodes in the dry moat below their cells, and the shattering roar fills the entire tower. They blow out their candle. They sit in silence, and they're waiting. They're waiting, and and nothing happens. And after some time, finally, you know, Jack strikes a light, and they inspect their work, and we're ready for the big payoff. And Jack reports. Six inches more and a thin man could slip through. Oh, almost, but not quite. Almost, but not quite. This is a little bit like a certain moment in a certain famous film about a certain famous shark. You're going to need a bigger boat. So Jack's got to go back to work again, re-reaving the system. They changed the system of ropes and pulleys, and they've got to work on this second stone. And 
this is a moment for Stephen once again to step, step into Jack Aubrey's world. And I love this writing. It says, Stephen watched them. Now that the gate to freedom was half open, he could no longer control his heart. And as the long process ran its course, he felt exasperation, impatience, impotent frustration rise to an almost unbearable pitch. He was confident that the half-demolished encumbered moat would present no difficulty and that once they were clear of the temple, they could lie up safely in any of the half-dozen refuges he knew. If only they could begin to move. So, it's, I mean, it's very painful for Stephen. He's painting this picture in his mind of the possibility that just about awaits outside. But he, Stephen, is beginning to feel the tension and the responsibility and the burden of trying to get this last stone moved. And he's got plans, right? He's he's planning to get in touch with Lamotte and Talleyrand. He's got final arrangements that he can make to figure out if Duhamel's proposal is, is, is indeed genuine. But they've got to be out. And he knows that Major Clapier, the French military intelligence guy, would storm the temple if necessary. So Stephen's worried about Diana. He's arguing back and forth with himself about whether she's okay. So I think he decides to, <laughs> to, to take a step back and give his brain a rest. It says he collected their possessions and fed the mouse. Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Even Stephen can't calm his brain here. And usually, you know, unless he's being a bad patient or is absolutely uh, addled by French intelligence agents and a blow to the head, he's usually pretty good at controlling his thoughts. But finally, Jack is ready to try the last stone. He's got it all set up. He's worried the angle's not as good. The multiplication, the leverage he's got set up is less. And they'd have to pull harder. And he's just hoping against hope that the pins would bear it. And Stephen positions himself. He has the wedges and the cold chisel already. He's watching this strain mount and mount. And then he realizes, wait a minute, he can be more helpful. He jumps up. He straddles the stone. He wraps his arms around it. And he's pulling as the stone is coming up. He's pulling and shoving himself under it. The stone cuts into his arm and his vision is blurring. He's about to pass out and fall over on this thing. And he gasps. She rises and jumps down, sets the wedges. And O'Brien, just just O'Brien, you know, boom. All of a sudden in the next room, Jack's watching Stephen and smiles as the door opens, this mystery door in Jack's bedroom. It's the unknown door swings open, and there's four men standing there. The leader says, good evening, gentlemen. And Stephen sees that Jack and Yagyello are about to, to jump them and you know overpower them. But he says, Jack, do not move. And he turns and says, gentlemen, good evening. Pray walk in. And of course, it's Duhamel. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen, though, steps forward and falls <laughs> into the gap, falls into the free night. Jack and Duhamel grab Stephen. I mean, this is, you know, if, if there had been water present, Stephen would have fallen into it. But there's not water, so he's got to fall into the air. Jack and Duhamel grab Stephen, pluck him out. Jack, uh, Stephen's banged his shin. He says, gentlemen, to the new arrivals, please state your business. Now, the leader had met Stephen when he was working for Talleyrand in London, and Stephen remembered him. This is this man, Danglars, and complimented him and Talleyrand, despite Stephen seeing Talleyrand as a pillar of falsehood. And Stephen notices Danglars move, and the, the familiar movement reminds him of Lamotte, and that this man, Danglars, was a friend of Lamotte. So I think my, <laughs> Stephen's been rescued in part by the gay scene in Paris that's been looking after Diana. Exactly. So. Nice, nice payoff there. 
And Danglars asks for a private word with Stephen. And they notice that there's this other officer present whose cloak, it says, hid a splendid uniform, as well as another man in black whose face Stephen connected with the upper reaches of the foreign ministry. So Danglars, when he gets Stephen alone, he tells him that they can agree to all of his conditions, but they can't return the stone immediately. They can't give Diana her diamond back right away, but they pledge that they will eventually. And kind of in return, he gives Stephen an, what's written as an Episcopal ring with this huge green amethyst. And Stephen is quiet. Yeah. But then as Stephen's contemplating this, he's told, but we can produce the stone's owner ready and indeed eager to travel. So here it is. We've talked to Diana. She's ready to go with you. And Stephen is all in. <laughs> he offers Stephen money, lots of money. Stephen turns him down flat, saying, I have always avoided complications. But he asks what other guarantees they offer. And they say, look, all three of us will accompany you and your companions. We will go to the cartel at Calais, cross to England if you wish, our life or at least our liberty will be in your hands. You may carry what weapons you choose. And Stephen replied, then let us go. Excellent. And we're off. So Stephen and Yagiello and Jack ride in two carriages with the officer and the man in black as mounted guards. Stephen's limp from the banged shin gives them the perfect alibi for taking him away for treatment. Donglas says they'll pick up the lady, Diana, of course, at the Hotel de la Motte. The question is raised, has she been molested? <laughs> and we learned that an American had come by inquiring, but Diana had not been molested. And I think that removes the last of the worries that Stephen might have had about Diana. Stephen wanted to be sure that Diana believed his release was entirely of her own doing so that she could, I guess she can have the, the, the moral payoff, have the, have the glow that comes from knowing that it was her that set him free. Yeah, and Talleyrand's folks are only too glad. So certainly anything else would be complete yeah. folly from our point of view. We, we, we can't be the ones who let you go. That was right. No. Perfect. And we have this really all, all, almost hurried, it's all coming along in a tumble now. Uh, they get to the Hotel de la Motte. Diana's waiting for them in the courtyard, surrounded by manservants. And it says, Stephen leapt out and limped up to her, she running to meet him. They kissed and he said, Dearest Diana, how profoundly I thank you but I've cost you the blue Peter. How happy I am to see you, she says, holding his arm. Be damned to the necklace. You will be my diamond. Oh, Mike, this is this is a great moment. Oh, I love this. And then we're going to find out the, 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 other, the other theme that we've had uh, is the foreboding about wombs, right? So I think the next thing is for Stephen to find out what's going on with the pregnancy. Yeah, and, and they, they both bring this up. And, you know, I heard from Baudelaire that you weren't quite well. And, uh, you know, she's saying, yes, you know, I did take great care, but uh, Dr. Baudelaire said it couldn't be helped. Uh, and, and Stephen agrees, you know, there was just no help for her. Uh, that I know very well. And he says to Diana, give me your hand, put your foot on the step, and we are away with the blessing. Wish I could do that in an Irish brogue. <laughs> I love that. Uh, <laughs> we can imagine Patrick Toll giving it a touch of the yeah, Irish broad there. That's great. Sure. And along the way, they stop at Duhamel's place to freshen up. And Stephen has told Jack now that Diana gave the great diamond to a minister's wife. And this is a nice bit of restitution as well. You know, all the restitutions are coming one after another. 
Jack gets to have Diana rehabilitated. Did she, by God? Cried Jack, motionless, one arm in his sleeve. Handsome. Damn my soul if that ain't handsome. But but Stephen, she was so pleased and proud of it. Nothing finer in the tower, a king's ransom. How can I thank her? She always was a thoroughbred, but this, ah, Sophie will be so eternally grateful. So am I upon my sacred honour. And I love this moment when he runs into the echoing room, seized her in his powerful grasp and said, Cousin Diana, I am so grateful. I am proud, oh, so proud to call you kin. God bless you, my dear. I love this. Wow. They all pile back in the carriages. They stick Dangler and, and Dumel and Stephen in one because they've got to talk through this document and, and make arrangements. How do they carry this word to England? Stephen is giving them feedback on the document, how to tone it down, make it more acceptable to England. Uh, and in the other carriage, Jack is telling Diana, you have to come live with Sophie and me. We're not going to hear a refusal. They talk all about Stephen, the two of them. I would love to have heard some of that dialogue, but O'Brien doesn't share that with us. And uh, Stephen thinks that uh, this proposal is a pretty good one, and it stands a pretty good chance when it arrives in England. But he's, you know, it's kind of... Uh, Stephen's still a little bit worried. He thinks, you know, maybe we're going to be stopped by some official who want confirmation from Paris. Maybe Johnson, who's, you know, paid off everybody in the world to stop them before, could get after him. But they don't. They run quickly and swiftly and smoothly across the country. Stephen, again, admiring French administrative work, how all this goes. And they arrive on the HMS Oedipus. Don't get us started, right? <laughs> oh, HMS, Oedipus, 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 Oedipus. tomato, tomato. <laughs> potato, potato. <laughs> that must be a Tom Lehrer song in there somewhere. <laughs> and there she is. There she is, HMS Mother Love in the harbor, ready to sail on the ebb. <laughs> yes, with a modest offshore breeze. Oh, everything is shaping up well for our heroes here, right? Right. And they've even got Donglar coming with them. And I, I, I think Donglar is meant to be the person who's carrying the message yes. to the English authorities on behalf of the royalists in France. I think Donglar is also a little bit of a hostage, like he's saying, you're okay because you've got this this person with you as a token of good faith. So, and Stephen there is hopefully going to help persuade the authorities in England as well. Yes. And we get this another, for me, great emotional payoff. They're waiting to go. And Jack looks down on the deck of the ship, and there on the quarterdeck is William Babington making all the arrangement. Jack's thinking to himself, Babington, like Babington's really young. You know, a cartel captain is a really responsible, discreet position. You know, all this secret stuff going back and forth between France and England. Babington to get this, it's wonderful. So as they come aboard, Babington evidences this great discretion. He has everybody escorted to the rooms as they come aboard, and he gives absolutely no hint of recognizing any of them. But I think he does send a little bit of a signal to Jack as he calls out, all hands to unmoor ship. And and O'Brien tells us that he sounds just exactly like Jack Aubrey giving the command. Oh, and we get a hint, because we're in the final pages now, we get a hint of life returning back to normal aboard a ship as we get a little account from Patrick O'Brien of the unmooring. Here it says Captain Babington let fall his courses and some pretty severe remarks about the sloth of the midshipmen at the larboard gaskets, a sloth that foretold the ruin of the Navy within a very short lapse of time, and he had just uttered this prophecy, which he had first heard from Jack at the age of 12, 
when a tall shadow fell across the deck and turning, he saw the original prophet himself, looking nervous, apprehensive, uneasy, timid, a striking sight for one who had gone into action with Captain Aubrey as often as William Babington. And then I like this moment that uh, Jack and Babington are sort of unblinded to each other a little bit. And we just hear from the cabin below uh, what's going on between Stephen and Diana. They are at it. Hammer and tongs, said Jack in a low private voice. Hammer and tongs. They might have been married this 12 month or more. Dear me, said Babington, appalled. And of course, what what is it that they're at? Hammer and tongs, Mike. It's not the obvious, is it? No, no, no. Here they are. And they're actually, with Babington and Jacqueline Deck, they hear the words sort of come up from the cabin skylight. God's death, Matron. What an obstinate, stubborn, pig-headed brute you are upon my honor. You always were. (laughs) And Babington suggests that he shows the ship's figurehead to Jack so that they can kind of move away and not listen to this. (laughs) Oh, there's probably a whole series of deep metaphors and allusions there to do with figureheads and Oedipus and marriage, but I think we'll leave those to the imagination. Well, and just today, we posted a little article about figureheads, but this will have been a couple weeks back by the time you hear this, right? Go looking for that at facebook.com forward slash lovers hole. Go looking for that on Twitter at uh, at whole lovers, and you'll track down our great article about figureheads. Yes. So meanwhile, Jack and Babington are reflecting on what this all means, I do not mean the least fling at your figurehead, still less your brig, Babington, but that family was really not quite the thing, you know, he's referring to Oedipus. And there were some very odd capers, and it ended unhappy, but then. Relationships between men and women are often very odd, and I am afraid they often end unhappy. And But Jack clearly can't continue this line of marital introspection anymore, because he changes the subject. So how do you find your martingale's answer led, led single like that? Much more solid ground for Jack talking about rigging. I love it. Diana and Stephen are still going at it, hammer and tongs. She doesn't like Stephen talking about their marriage as what she calls a mere matter of expediency. Stephen keeps saying, you know, Johnson's in Paris. England's going to see you as an enemy alien. You really don't have that any choice. Can I get this into your thick head? But finally, Diana can can tell him, surely you must know, surely you must feel that any woman, even a woman as battered as I am, must look for something more, more, what shall I say, more romantic in an offer of marriage. Even if I were to marry you, which is totally inconceivable, I should never, never do so after such a groveling, such an utterly mundane and businesslike proposal. It is a question of common good manners or ordinary civility. Really, Matron, I wonder at you. And then the payoff. Oh, I love this. Yet indeed, Diana, I love you dearly, said Stephen in a dejected tone, looking down. Oh, Oh, there's the moment. Now, sometime way back... In, I think it was post-captain, I think Sophie had said to Stephen, if you would just tell her that you love her and ask her to marry you, everything would be okay. And he's never yet been able to come close to a real admission of love and to a genuinely romantic um, appeal. Oh, and there he is. Well done. Well done, Stephen. We're, we're, all, we're all applauding. Jack and Babington up on deck, meanwhile, are still talking about sales uh, until they're called down together to Diana's cabin. Stephen and Diana are holding hands like a happy country pair. Babington calls for champagne and Stephen asks how long it's going to take for them to get to Dover. Ah, and then Mike. 
Stephen gets to turn nautical himself. He says, then there is not a moment to lose. I have a service to beg. I shall only be too happy, delighted, says Babington. I desire you to marry us. Very well, sir, said Babington. Tom, Tom there, the prayer book. And Jack interrupts. William, says Jack in an aside, do you know the drill? Oh, yes, sir. You always taught us to be prepared for the unexpected. You remember? It comes before the burial service. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Now pass the word for my clerk. Ah, Mr. Adam, the log and the proper certificates for a marriage, if you please. Note the time and stand by to give the responses. Now, sir, who gives the lady away? Mike, do you want to pick it up from here? Oh, a moment's hesitation, and then Jack, catching Diana's eye, cried, I do is next of kin, and most uncommon happy and honoured to do so, he added. You stand there, sir, if you please, said Babington, taking his station behind the mahogany table and checking the pens, paper, and ink pot. Doctor, have you a ring? I have, said Stephen, producing the amethyst. And Babington, in a clear sea officer's voice, without the least hint of affectation or levity, he read the service through. Jack listened to the familiar, intensely moving words at Till Death Do Us Part, his eyes clouded. And when it came to Do You, Stephen, and Do You, Diana, his mind ran back so strongly to his own wedding that Sophie might have been there at his side. I now pronounce you man and wife, said Babington, closing the book, and still with the same gravity, but with great happiness showing through it, Mrs. Matron, dear doctor, I give you all the joy in the world. Fantastic. Oh, Mike, thank you for reading that. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant ending. Yeah. And the answer to the question that we've been saving up for so long, who is the surgeon's mate? By what means does the surgeon come to be mated? Right. It was Diana. It's it was Diana. Diana. Oh. Oh. And for all of you who have harbored, as, as I often have, ill feelings towards Diana, we have standby Rachel McMillan to give us a different perspective. We're talking today with Rachel McMillan, author, Patrick O'Brien reader, and Diana Villers fan. Based in Canada, Rachel is the author of a range of historical fiction with book series set in Boston, Toronto, and Vienna. Her new book, The London Restoration, is set, surprise, surprise, in London in World War II and features a protagonist named Diana. And her forthcoming book, The Mozart Code, has a protagonist named Villers, so maybe there's a clue to where her literary loyalties lie. Rachel, welcome to The Lover's Hole. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So, Rachel, before we get to talking about Diana's in their various forms, old and new, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us how you got started reading the uh, O'Brien novels. Well, uh, as said, I'm an author, but I'm also a voracious reader, and I love historical fiction, and I have since I was in high school. And during high school, I discovered uh, C.S. Forrester and Bernard Cornwell and Dewey Lambden and a bunch of uh, people who work during the Napoleonic Wars and write about, of course, the sea. And someone had mentioned that if I like Forrester, I have to try Patrick O'Brien. And so I was studying in England at the University of Sussex in my first year of university. And I went to a used bookstore and I saw a copy of Post Captain. So I didn't actually read the O'Brien series in order. What I did was during my time in the UK, 
I would use them as train books as I was taking the train around. And so whatever the bookstore had in the canon, I would pick that up. So I read them out of order, which meant that when I got to Master and Commander, I was so excited to see Jack and Steven's first meeting. Um, but it really inspired what I went and saw while I was living over there for a while, including Portsmouth. I went to Portsmouth quite a few weekends because I was so immersed in... Um, you know, I like Forrester, I like Hornblower, but uh, O'Brien's a completely different uh, level for me. And as a writer, an aspiring writer at that time, I was just absolutely flabbergasted, not only by the world he created and his amazing propensity for filling his fiction with the most interesting historical day-to-day -day facts, but also just how brilliant his dialogue and characterization is. So I learned from him, I think, without even realizing it. When I came to write my own books, I always think that writers are like a piece of Velcro and you unintentionally pick up everything along the way. And I really admired him. Mostly I admired him because, and this is something that shocks people, he writes some of the most brilliantly defined female characters, I think, in all of literature. Wow. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Rachel. <laughs> I, I agree totally. Well, Rachel, on your website, you mentioned that your favorite film is Master and Commander. So was it easy to get along with the film version of the books, the books that you already knew when you saw the movie? Yeah. So the, the movie came out and I was already really familiar with the series. And so I went into it very excited. At first, I, I must confess, I was a little... Um, apprehensive about the casting of Paul Bettany because he, for any reader, doesn't look anything like Maturin is described. But what I found the film did brilliantly was capture the essence of the 21 stories, as well as the central relationship between Jack and Stephen. And you also got a really wonderful poetic look with the cinematography, with the dialogue of what life was like on a ship at that time. But for all of that, it is very much deprived of the women who I think make the series so exceptional. At one point, we see Jack. He has a cameo of his wife, Sophie, um, and he's writing her a letter. At another time, they stop at a port to refill on supplies, and there is a woman there, but she doesn't even get to speak. She just smiles. So what we need, everybody, is for HBO or Netflix to pick up this series and do an amazing job of just Stephen's espionage world, the women in the series. But I still, you know, to take all of those books and really capture the heart of so much of them in a two and a half hour period, I think is pretty brilliant. So yay to Peter Weir for that. He's clearly a fan. Clearly. And we've spoken already to Gord Laco, who worked on the production side. It's just such a great evocation of the world as well, isn't it? So you mentioned that one of the things that we missed is is female characters, Rachel. So let, let's get to it. Let's talk about Diana Villiers. Hero, <laughs> hero. Take us away. Everyone, it's okay if you don't like Diana at first, all right? <laughs> because she is so complex. I argue and... I have read a lot of books and studied a lot of female characters in my life. 
I argue that she is possibly the most complex female character in all of literature. And I am a Dickensian from way back, and I've studied the Brontes, so it says a lot. But what we have here is someone who splashes onto the page to add a counterbalance to this very male sphere. And, you know, we talked, Mike and Ian, last week uh, when we were having an informal chat about the fact that if you read Master and Commander, you are not going to get a full view of what Patrick O'Brien does with female characters. There's a complete tonal shift between Master and Commander with post-captain, and I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit later, which is very much a Jane Austen drawing room <laughs> book for several chapters. So I argue that Diana Villiers is definitely someone who was influenced by Patrick O'Brien's second wife, Mary Tolstoy. And when he was writing the canon, he and Mary lived in the south of France. We know that she had an exceptional experience during the war. She drove an ambulance. Um, we also know that they didn't have a perfect home life. Uh, Patrick O'Brien was a very secretive person, perhaps not the easiest person to live with. Um, he hid his identity. So they created a world of their own. And I like to think that a lot of what she challenged in their time together, when we know they re read together, they both like the same authors, he really took a lot of what he saw in his wife as a strong woman and transported it into Diana. So I think that, you know, if you are a female reader or a male reader and you go to Amazon or whatever your bookstore is and pick up any of the books, I think Diana is mentioned in the cover copy on the back maybe once. Like the film, the female influence on these books is completely removed. And while Master and Commander intentionally keeps Diana and Sophie out, once they are in the books, they shape the Aubrey and Maturin relationship, which we uh, is obviously the central heart of the books. But without Diana and Sophie, we wouldn't have the decisions that Jack and Stephen make. Um, often, what catapults them into, uh, you know, what they're trying to do. You really need a grounding in the domestic sphere with Sophie, but you really need Stephen to be challenged by someone who intercepts his espionage world but also challenges him as a very <laughs> unique romantic figure so i think that i think if they are going to relaunch these books they need to do a very good job i'd like to see several more printings where women are featured on the back cover copy because they play a huge part in the book absolutely absolutely it's funny because we're desurgeons mate now but and it's easy kind of in the first part of the canon to see Diana is kind of the object of Stephen's doomed love. And, and, and I think those of us on team Stephen have, have kind of looked at her a little bit kind of, you know, Oh, Oh, this impact on Stephen. But even as we look back in those novels, we get a little bit more of a balanced picture of her character. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and her relationship? Well, I think that Diana is a survivor and in many ways that puts her on equal footing with Stephen, who's also had to overcome a lot from his illegitimate background to 
his very awkward experiences when he's a fish out of water on the HMS Surprise, you know, when Stephen just kind of falls over and is in the water or gets stranded on a rock. And <laughs> um, so Diana is someone who has to survive. There were so few options afforded women who were single in the Regency era. When we meet her, she's living with the Williamses, her cousins, but she doesn't have capital of her own. And I think that one of the ways we can start to view Diana through a new lens is to remember that she does not want to treat Stephen like she treats the other men that she is engaged with, right? And that shows a lot, that she does care for him in a way, but she also has to always be thinking about how she can survive. And that is very much because she's a victim of the structure of the time period that didn't allow for women to have a lot of capital or independence outside of a relationship with a man. And I think that some of the interesting things that we can take, even from the earliest books when we get to know Diana, is to watch and see how Stephen and Diana understand each other and have this kind of world and language of their own. I always bring up the point that in the time period, it was very traditional for men to call other men by their surnames. So Stephen calls Sophie Sophie, or he'll call her a term of endearment. Honey is one he uses um, for Jack's paramour and or interest and later wife but he calls diana villiers villiers they're villiers and maturin they're on equal level um he also notices her in a way that's not your typical romantic way that shows that there's probably a deeper connection between them he definitely notices how she sits on a horse um we talk a lot about you know the hunter and huntress and prey motifs that are used in relation to diana but we also know that he first notices diana truly in terms of music which is huge for jack and stephen obviously they meet at a concert they're always playing together he knows that it's not Sophie who's playing the piano. There's something in the change of rhythm. There's something in the irregularity of the tempo that is so alive. So he's attracted to Diana in these small ways. And it's interesting that we get a lot of Maturin's diary throughout the series, but starting with Diana, his notes start with her. It's almost like she's a specimen that he wants to observe. One of the things you have to realize is that if you start with Master and Commander as a look at the females, you're going to get a lot of body humor. You're going to get a lot of women who are just functioning as a plot point to catapult the world of these two men. And that's wonderful. But once we get into Mrs. Williams, who's basically <laughs> Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, and once we learn that Jack and Stephen are going to be intercepted by these women in every course of their lives, I think that we can understand a little bit more about Patrick O'Brien's passion for creating complex characters. He al always said that he was most flattered when he was compared to Jane Austen out of all the authors that people compared him to. And so I think that, you know, Diana presents one area of feminism, but Sophie, she has to keep the household going. She has to raise the kids. She puts up with Jack, which would be absolutely a terrible idea <laughs> because he's a horrible <laughs> husband um, for all of his wonderful things. He's a horrible husband. Um, but uh, he portrays these women quite wonderfully. And so if you're thinking 
that Diana is just there as Stephen's downfall or as a femme fatale. I think go back and look at the way they engage with each other. They're very good friends and she doesn't want to treat him like she does other people. Um, you know, Ian, Mike, we talked a lot about the hunter and prey motifs, which I think are wonderful. And at one point, Diana even calls out Stephen and says, you like the pursuit of mm-hmm. me. Yeah, the chase has a beast in view. The yeah. chase has mm-hmm. a beast in view. She's very aware and probably a little bit vulnerable, wondering what Stephen's up to in terms of their emotional connection as well um, because she has not had a connection like this with a male before usually she uses them for her own means uh, Jack Aubrey is not immediately endearing to her so I think that through the lens of what she does we can see a lot and of course the critical action that uh, propels the Diana and Stephen relationship is, of course, when she gives away the Blue Peter Diamond. We talked last week, we were just having a chat, and Mike brought up the fact that, you know, she talks about how she debased herself for it. She worked for it. Unlike the rubies and pearls she had gotten from Paramours before, she really felt that this was something she had secured for her own independence. And we know she didn't have a lot of capital or potential on her own. So her giving up the Blue Peter for Stephen, I think is one of the most critical moments in the whole of the canon. All these characters doing things for one another, but as a romantic, for better or worse, I just, I'm flabbergasted by how romantic that is because at this point we know how integral it is to Diana's independence. So she's willing to give that up for Stephen. And it's funny, O'Brien's seems to be working very hard to separate the idea of marriage mm-hmm. from the idea of right. romantic love. There's all, this, all these foreboding, <laughs> warning messages about the prospect of marriage. He seems to have a bit of a downer on the yeah. state. And, you know, marriage for Stephen and Diana does not look like marriage does for many people. But remember, in the time period, marriage was often the result of women were a commodity. You married to save an estate. Men often had women on the side. Jack obviously has women on the side. Um, Marriage was a social contract. So what I enjoy about Diana and Stephen's marriage, because yay, that, you know, Blue Peter is given up and at the end of the surgeon's mate, surprise, that's the surgeon's mate. They finally marry. But it's not the sweeping happily ever after where the story ends there. It's one step to making their relationship even more complex. And so obviously they, and you'll, this isn't a huge spoiler. I think most readers would figure this out. They decide not to actually live together for a lot of the time. She doesn't want to be trapped with Stephen's um, specimens, etc., and experiments. And he's often at sea, but they make it work within the context of their very strange relationship, which is obviously a lot of attraction, obviously a deep friendship, um, but not as typical as marriages usually work in fiction, but also maybe because of that, a lot more healthy for them (laughs) than a typical marriage because they're so unique. They're such unique characters. So, Let's indulge for a minute in a bit of a look forward and maybe we can say to listeners, 
if you really don't want to hear spoiler content about the the future arc of Diana and Stephen, uh, skip ahead by a couple of minutes. Right. <laughs> Help, help us form. I mean, we should we should certainly come back to this as the as the uh, as the canon continues as we're reading. But Rachel, help us look forward. Is it all going to be sweetness and light? It doesn't sound like they're going to settle down in the traditional way at all. No, and they do have. And honestly, everyone, scrub ahead a few <laughs> if you don't want to hear this. If you're a first time <laughs> reader. Um, <laughs> But we know from past books that Diana seems to pop up like she pops up in India. She pops up in Boston. She's around and we get to see her in different parts of the world. And that's a contrast to Sophie, who's very much staying in England, waiting for Jack to come home. Um, But I also another podcast can be just the Stephen and Sophie relationship. They have such a lovely friendship. I love that. Um, we see Diana help Stephen through some, you know, Stephen obviously is a an addict, um, an opium addict. And Diana really puts her in sickness and in health vows to play in many ways. Don't stop just because they're married. I mean, it doesn't get boring. It gets more interesting. There, It's not that they get married and all that sexual tension is over and they live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saw what happened when Jack and Sophie get married. <laughs> O'Brien keeps it going. It's just wonderful. Um, the women in this series could just, there's we could do a podcast on all of them. They're all fantastic. Well, I was going to say we could do a podcast on every one of the women in the in the canon individually, and I think we could do an absolute podcast on O'Brien and children because, you know, we we had a little bit of a chance to chat last week about Dill talking about Stephen and being a romantic, but also a bit of a curmudgeon and sometimes his lack of relationship. That here's another strong relationship with a female, but this is with a female child. Um, and, and children, you know, Ian and I have mentioned a number of times, they play such an important part in the canon and in the series. Oh, absolutely. And I think that we were talking just earlier this hour about um, children did play a massive part in the life of a ship, obviously. Right. Um, the powder monkeys, um, children were pressed into service, obviously, but who were at sea left a lot of children behind, sometimes knowing about them, sometimes not. Children were very much a part of the world. But HMS Surprise is probably my favorite book in the series. And that's because we get absolutely everything in it. We get an amazing sea voyage. We get these wonderful places, um, exotic locales. We get a lot of really great Jack and Stephen moments. We get that amazing rescue when Stephen's being captured and tortured. And we also get to go to India and we get some really wonderful Diana Villiers moments. And so when Stephen is in India, he reunites with Diana, who's with someone I do not know how to pronounce her Swedish lover's name. I don't think I've ever taken the time. Well, here's the thing. In in my head, it's been Jack That's Yellow. what it's been oh, in my head. Right, right, right. And but in Patrick Toll's voice, it's Yagyella. I wondered so. about the J being silent. But we we get Diana, and we also get Dill. And Dill is an orphan um, who Stephen meets, and 
you know, we don't really know how St- Stephen just picks up people and animals like Velcro. It's like, oh, I have a sloth today. All right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that I find O'Brien does is allow us a window into Stephen again and again through his interaction and emotional connection with animals and with children. And with Dill, I think he sees a lot of himself. We know that Stephen, he's troubled by the fact that he's illegitimate. He's spent his life being called a bastard. He has no real sense of family and belonging. He's kind of been a nomad. He's trying to figure himself out. And I think he sees parts of himself in Dill because she's resourceful. She's very affectionate. She protects him from Diana. She meets Diana and she's like, yeah, right. what are your intentions, lady? And um, and you know what? I, I just find Dill's arc so tragic because we've all read HMS The Prize at this point on the podcast. Uh, right. She does pass away and it's the result of something Stephen did to indulge one of her whims. She wanted some bangles and he buys them for her and of course is robbed and killed. And then he pays for her funeral. And I do think that by his doing that, he's able to validate her in a way and legitimize her in a way that he feels he still is not. So it, Dill allows us another window into Stephen. I mean, Stephen is just, oh, he's one of the best characters ever. I love him. And yes. we just, all of his interactions with humans from someone who is a very, peculiar person um, really gives us a a strong emotional arc. And it's interesting that Dill intercepts this reunion with Diana in India, because we know Diana is a weak point for him, um, his kryptonite. So we just get like this boom, lots of Stephen emotional treachery all at once. And I, I just love HMS Surprise for that. Thank you so much. It's really, really fascinating to get, uh, like you said, the the balanced scoop on Diana and some so much interesting action to come in the future. Let's talk about what's coming in your future. Rachel, tell us about your books. Um, what kind of characters are readers going to encounter if they pick up? <laughs> well, I do tend to write a lot of strong women who many readers might think, oh, that just means that they're not very warm. But I think that I tend to and this is very much Diana Velliers' influence, look at women and how they, in many different time periods, are forced to be a certain way just in order to survive or in order to make their way in a man's world. And so in the London Restoration, my latest book, it came out in August, Diana, my heroine, um, <laughs> a nod to our Diana, is um, an architectural historian who spends four years at Bletchley Park. And she signed the Official Secrets Act, and she was a brilliant code breaker. She was working with Luftwaffe messages that were embedded in music. So she, there's a whole Mozart theme to it. And when she gets back, she's forced back to being a domestic person, um, you know, trying to cook. She's a horrible housekeeper. And I think that the women, I, I try to invent women who are just trying to make sure that their voices are heard and that they belong. And I would say and encourage any, actually, I didn't mean to say this, but I'm going to I encourage any women who feel like they're left out of series and discussions like this to keep pursuing it. Um, I told Mike and Ian last week that I've had moments where um, 
you know, I was on a date and I told a first date and I told the guy, um, he's like, what's your favorite movie? And I'm like, master and commander. And he's like, you don't have to just say that to impress me. And I was like, no, legitimately <laughs> love this. So I do feel, even though the majority of the O'Brien sphere is wonderful, that even nowadays we almost have to fight a little bit extra to make sure that we're, um, listened to. And I think that O'Brien really, uh, and thanks to Mary Tolstoy, you know, a strong woman in his life, he really advocates and champions for women to be on the men's level in his books. And Diana is totally on the level of Stephen and Jack. And so uh, that's London Restoration. And then next year, next August, I have the Mozart Code coming out. And my heroine, Sophie Villiers, again, a nod to our two <laughs> women. In, and she's known by her surname. Um, she works for MI6 after being um, trained at Bletchley Park. And she has a very interesting, very Diana-esque streak in, I actually went back to a lot of Diana and Steven's interactions when I was creating her relationship with my hero, Simon. So if you like O'Brien, there's a nice homage to him. And uh, yeah, that's what's coming up with me. Fantastic. Easy to get hold of copies. Where can um, we find them? Anywhere in the world on Amazon or your indie bookstore can order them. Um, your local bookstore, if you're in the UK, Foils and Waterstones can get them for you. Um, if you're in the US, definitely Barnes and Noble and definitely Amazon. They're, they're widely out there. Um, but you can also follow me. My handle across social media is Rach K. Mick, R-A-C-H-K-M-C on Instagram and Twitter and find me and I will help you find those books <laughs> and talk your ear off about Diana too, if you'd like. <laughs> and Rachel, I know we've got a lot of Sherlock Holmes fans out mm. in our listening audience as well. Yeah. Tell us a little tiny bit about Herringford and Watts. So my first ever series is an homage to Sherlock Holmes and it features um, two women who open a private investigation firm in Edwardian era Toronto. So Herringford and Watts, they want to be Sherlock Holmes and Watson. They don't really succeed, but they try. And the, the twist is that Toronto had a morality squad that would round up women if they were caught out at night and seen to be quote unquote incorrigible. So Jem and Marinda my two heroines have to dress up as men in order to solve these mysteries and in order to navigate um, mysteries in Edwardian era Toronto. And if you're a Doyle fan, I throw so many references into those books. Um, so they're fun, but they're, they are an homage to Sherlock Holmes. That's another, it's another deep fan loving world of mine is that. I find a lot of O'Brien fans like Conan Doyle. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a yeah. cross over there. <laughs> well, Rachel, thanks so much. We've needed a little injection of Diana Villiers' love, and you've given that to us. We appreciate <laughs> it so much, and we're so thrilled. I mean, we understand from an Economist article that HarperCollins may be coming out with a new edition of the O'Brien books. And pitching it a little bit more towards women. So at least in the UK, and fingers crossed, we think that would be wonderful. Uh, they a... need to be, they play such a huge part in the series that it's a, it does a disservice to O'Brien 
not to include them yeah. in the packaging and promoting. Um, Absolutely. And let's really all does. fingers crossed that someone picks this up and makes a series because can you imagine all they could do? Steven's espionage world. Oh, great. Oh, Netflix. <laughs> Yes. HBO, <laughs> are you listening? Are you listening? <laughs> it's been loads of fun. Thank you so much, Rachel. Love speaking to you. Look forward to uh, crossing paths again and good luck with all Thanks the books. Thanks very Absolutely. much. This has been a delight. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Mike, it really great to finish the book on that kind of a high and really great to finish this bit of the arc as well with some thoughts about Diana. So it was great to talk to Rachel. It really was. And now we've talked so much about where is this story going, what's happening. It's kind of defied our expectations sometimes. And we're about to pull the Ionian mission off the shelf. And I know it's one of your favorites. And I think we're going to have a surprise familiar character returning. I cannot wait to get to the Ionian mission next week. Ian, what do you say to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, with all my heart. so relieved never been so relieved in my life he says right <laughs>